reading today is Romans chapter 9 and it's on page 1134 in the Bible and they're just in front of you. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever pleased. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's 
mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Well, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Thank you, Glennis. That is not the easiest of Bible readings. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for each part of your word, <clears throat> particularly this one that may be confounding as we first read it all sorts of reasons but we pray Lord that you'd speak to us through it and give us a humility of heart and just minds that understand and hearts that want to obey in Jesus name amen well last week when I began my sermon uh, as a part of it I displayed some beautiful artworks from a French art museum from Monet and if you are familiar uh, you may I can click. Oh, Al, there we go. I don't think I've clicked the um, receptor back into the USB-C at the back, Deb. It's on top of the desk there, if you can see it. Nathan knows what I've done. (laughs) Thank you, Nathan. And we marvelled at this picture, and it's an illustration about how marvellous God's amazing grace is towards us and the confidence we can have in Christ and Romans 8 is this incredible artwork of the way he works in our life I've got a second artwork for today you might be sitting there thinking what on earth is that (laughs) and you'd be right in saying that Um, what that is is a magic eyes piece of artwork Um, they're not in museums but kids have them in books And they're 3D puzzles and here is this one that you see on the screen and actually in there is a beautiful picture of a heart but you can't see that can you? Uh, I can see it if I do this and all of a sudden, it's upside down, um, oh that is incredible. (laughs) I know you can't see a thing though can you? And I suspect as we go through this chapter our vision is going to be a bit like that, um, that you're going to be staring at dots, if I can speak metaphorically, thinking, what on earth's going on? Um, we went from the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8, 
I think we come to one of the most difficult chapters, Romans chapter 9. Now, the beauty of working our way through sections of Scripture is we don't avoid the more difficult parts. And that's why we do that. And each part has something to say to us. And it's all God's Word. It's all good. And so if you've got your Bibles there, do open up. We're at Romans chapter 9, which Glenis read. It's page 1134. And I'm going to try and work our way through it. And there is a saying amongst preachers where there's mist in the pulpit, there's fog in the pews. Um, I hope it's not too foggy down in the pews today uh, because there's no doubt I've had a bit of mist in my head trying to work my way through this passage. So we'll see how we go. Um, There's two points that I want to make from this passage. And the first point is this, the tragedy of the religious unbeliever. Uh, The second point is the sovereign mercy of God and that's probably where uh, our questions are going to come in terms of God's purposes and his ways as to what we think about that. But firstly, the tragedy of the religious unbeliever. Let me take you back to last week for those who are here. Uh, Romans 8 and where we finished has this incredible outburst of confidence from Paul regarding our standing in Christ. And the way he is working for good in our life. And he said, we have been foreknown, we've been predestined, we've been called, we've been justified. We've even been glorified, even though it hasn't yet happened. He's so confident that he can say, that's what is taking place. That's how God views us. But the question comes as he finishes on this incredible note of praise. uh, What can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. And then you start to think with Paul about his Jewish brothers and sisters who are not in Christ. And that's where his heart goes. What about them? And the question comes, well, what is God doing? Yes, we get to benefit incredibly in Christ, but what about my countrymen and my countrywomen? And so that's where we pick up, and the first point is the tragedy of the religious unbeliever. And so let's have a look here uh, at Romans chapter 9, verse 1. If we can flick ahead, it's not working, Al. Uh, And if I can just say a couple of words as we begin chapter 9, one of the reasons why this passage is so difficult is because there is so much Old Testament in it. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you will struggle as we go through because he will just drop quotes and allusions with an incredible rapidity. And each time he mentions something, there's the expectation that you will understand not just the quote, but what lies behind there in terms of the Old Testament teaching. And I went through and just did a rough count, and I know there's more, but I found 30 different quotes and allusions in just this one chapter. The three chapters, 9 to 11, have one-third of all of Paul's Old Testament quotes in three chapters. There's a huge chunk of it here in chapter 9. And we'll see some of those as we go through. And he begins powerfully by saying these words at the beginning of chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So on the one hand, he is just praising God for the confidence that he has, that we have in Christ. As he then turns to think about his fellow Jews, his heart is broken. And when I say it's broken, those words, I have great sorrow and unseeking anguish. I want you to feel the pain that's in his heart for those who are cut off from Christ. It's palpable. And then he says some of the most shocking words, I think, in all of Scripture. He said, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. And if you don't quite get what he's saying here, he's saying, I would go to hell if my fellow Jewish brothers and sisters could have their eyes opened to see the Messiah. It's stunning. Now, Paul isn't going to go to hell, and he's speaking rhetorically here, but you just get this personal insight into his heart and the brokenness. It reminds me of the Lord Jesus when he came in in Luke chapter 19 and approached the great city of Jerusalem prior to his death. And he looks at the Jewish people there knowing that they will kill him and reject their Messiah. And he says, if only they had known the time of God's coming. But now they will face his judgment. And he weeps as he comes in. And Paul is doing exactly the same thing. He is weeping for his people. And he's broken by it. And then he recounts for us the privileges that they've had. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. That's Abraham and his descendants. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever to be praised. And what is stunning is, he's saying they had all the privileges that you could have, all of them, and yet they didn't get it. The temple, experiences of God revealing the law, they've got the ancestry. In fact, the Messiah came from them. And he's just broken by it. And it's a sobering warning for us about the tragedy of religion, that you can have the scriptures, you can have church, you can have Christian family, but not have your eyes opened and your heart opened to Christ. And it's a great reminder that all of us need to have our hearts touched by the Holy Spirit and our minds opened by him and for us individually to come to faith in Christ. But I just want us to think about Paul and his example for us. Because what he's saying is, I would sacrifice anything if it meant my brothers and sisters could come to faith in Christ. And I want us to ask that question, what are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? And there's no doubt chapter 9 has a lot to say on the topic of God's sovereign ways and election and calling. We're going to come to that. But I did not want to miss this first 
five verses and be challenged by Paul's heart for the lost, his own country men and women. Because we should have that same passion for our brothers and sisters here, our friends, our family. And it says to me, we should be willing to sacrifice our time, our money, our abilities, and we should use them for the sake of the gospel. I encourage you to reflect on that. But secondly, the sovereign mercy of God. Paul then, having reflected on the fact that most of his Jewish brothers and sisters have not come to faith in Christ, asks a question, I think, that was probably being asked of him. And what Paul had said to both Jew and Gentile alike is that this Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the one that God had planned and sent into the world. And the question would have come back, so why don't most of the Jews believe in him? (laughs) Now, no doubt there were Jewish people who turned to faith, and it's worth saying there are still today people turning to faith of Jewish origin and background. We must not give up on praying for Israel and for our Jewish brothers and sisters, if I can put it that way. But in that day, in that moment, people would have been saying, Paul, if this is the Messiah, why aren't the Messiah's people following him? Do his promises not work? And that's where we turn in verse 6, and in many ways turn for the rest of 9, 10 and 11. What then of Israel? Where do they fit in God's plans? And he says two things here. It's not as though God's word has failed. In other words, no, God had a plan. He had a purpose. His word has not failed. His promises are sure. You can keep believing and trusting in them. What he's promised will happen. And then he says something which I think was stunning in that day and it would have shocked the hearers, particularly the Jews, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And that's what he's going to unpack here in chapter 9. And what does he mean by that? Not all who are Israel are Israel. I thought Israel were the people who had been the uh, children of Abraham, the ones who had their 12 tribes who had gone through the Exodus, the ones who had been to Mount Sinai and received the law, the ones who had had the temple built, the ones who had gone into the land. Isn't that Israel? And Paul says, no. Not all Israel are Israel. What we see here is that there is a division or a group within Israel that is the true Israel. Not all Israel who descended from Israel are Israel. Let me jump ahead now to verse 7 and 8 because here is where he starts to fill in what he's saying. He's saying the true Israel is a spiritual entity. It's the ones who actually belong to Christ. It's the ones who are the children of the promise. So verse 7, not because 
they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children? So just think about that. Not all of Abraham's children were his descendants. On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children of physical descent who are the ch- God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's, Abraham's offspring. And for those not familiar with Abraham's story, he had two children from two mothers. There was Hagar who had Ishmael. There was Sarah who had Isaac. And what Paul is alluding to here is that God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. And so though Abraham had many children, only the children of the promise, the ones that were from Abraham and then Isaac, are the ones who were the descendants, spiritually. It's not the children of physical descent who are God's children, it's the children of the promise. And he's saying that in the Old Testament, the history of God's people, it started with Abraham and the ones who are the true people of God are the ones he promised it to. So God chose Isaac to be one of the fathers of his people and not Ishmael. And the underlying principle, and this is the one I think we struggle and grapple with, people belong to the people of God only when God says they do. And it's not by race, it's rather by his promise and his choice. In other words, God chooses Christians and his word has not failed. And the ones who were Israel truly in the Old Testament are the ones that he was at work at in their hearts and he reinforces this in verses 10 to 13 and here you go for the second major Old Testament allusion I'm going to read from 10 11's on the screen not only that but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works but by him who calls she was told the older will serve the younger just as it's written Jacob I love but Esau I hate it we'll come to that difficult uh, ending of the verse in a sec but what are you saying here is if when you think about Abraham he had two kids to start with you've got Ishmael you've got Isaac okay the promise of God went with uh, Isaac let's think about Isaac's kids he had twins and before anything had happened to signify whether they had done good or bad God made a sovereign choice regarding these twins he chose the younger against the conventions of the day almost to emphasize that his children are by his choice and he chose Jacob and if you know the story of Jacob he was not a great guy (laughs) you only have to read the history of him and you go yeah he was quite deceptive and yet he was the one that God chose And the point Paul makes here is the choice was made with twins in the womb before they'd even entered the world or done anything for you to think oh they've done good or bad and it was done this way Paul says in order that God's purpose in election might stand and then you got verse 13 which is the tricky verse Jacob I loved Esau I hated now what on earth is going on there I'm sure you're saying that I when I've read it I always stumble over it Uh, it's worth noting it's a Hebrew idiom or a figure of speech which is effectively saying I chose Jacob but I didn't choose Esau and it's a way of emphasizing that in the Hebrew language the key though is verse 11 it was in order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works but by him who calls it's worth 
bringing this to us and what this means for us. We are not Christians because of in any inherent goodness in us. We're not Christians because of any virtue of faith. This is why Paul emphasises that God chose Jacob when he was in the womb. It is incredibly, mysteriously, and I also want to say magnificently humbling that our salvation is all to do with God's sovereign grace and mercy. Now, do you know why God's ways make unexpected and unusual sense at the same time? I'm going to give you one thought, that his electing purposes in calling people and choosing people actually make sense. Have a look around the church today. Literally, have a look around, okay? This is a unique group of people. And I'm going to say this, if I can say, with the most love in my heart that I can, okay? We're an odd bunch. Like, seriously. The group of people here and the demographic, ethnic mix, sociological diversity, you would not find in any other club or gathering in Manly. And I say club because clubs are where you see human choice at work. And what do we do when we club together and gather together, be it Rotary, Provis, Pink Caps, you name it, Manly Longboarders Club, North Stain Board Riders, Queenscliff Board Riders, the Cricket Club? When you look at them, they're all pretty similar. We tend to choose people like ourselves to hang with. And it's one of the glorious things really about the church when you see the church properly functioning there is a diversity of race of status of wealth of abilities that you won't find anywhere else in society and it's only like that because God chooses people he says I can have you and you and you and that's what 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31 reflects on. And it's the beauty of the church, but it's a reflection of his sovereign electing ways. But there's a tension here, isn't there? And I'm sure you probably are thinking this, if God chooses some, why not others? That doesn't seem to be very godlike or very fair. look at verse 14 because that's the first objection that Paul answers and so Paul sets up the thesis God works sovereignly to elect people to salvation and then he has two responses to the two objections and it's worth saying our objections he is going to answer in ways that I probably wouldn't answer and that you might not answer and so we need to hear the way Paul answers because it's counterintuitive to us. But because it is God's word, it's helpful for us and good for us. 
Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is God unjust, i.e. that he elects people and not others? And Paul's response in that verse is, no, not at all. It's emphatic. And it works this way because none of us actually deserve to be saved. And so when you go to verse 15 and have a look at that, he just throws this quote in. It's from Exodus 33 verse 19. It's just one of the many that are through this chapter. And I'm just going to give you a bit of backdrop. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And that little reference is a reference to one of the most astounding low points in the history of the people of God, it's the golden calf incident, if you're familiar with it, in Exodus. And if you're not familiar with it, uh, the people of God had gone up the mountain, they'd encountered the living God, he'd spoken, the Ten Commandments had come, he had formed them as a nation, they come down the mountain, Moses goes back up to meet with God, and what do Israel do? They build this golden calf, the nation worships it. And God is ready to wipe all of them, I kid you not, all of them out. Because none of them were deserving. But he doesn't. Some are, others are spared. And his quote, famous is, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Paul reflects on that incident and replies that now to how God works continuing today he'll have mercy on whom he has mercy on and compassion and so when we raise the question that's not God, that's not fair Paul says actually well if you want justice God would wipe all of us out that's biblical justice And if you're here today saying it's not fair, I I get that. But what would be just, what would be fair is that, okay, well, you stand before God with your life without Christ. And you'll get justice. And that will be judgment and being removed from the presence of God and facing hell. None of us are worthy to be in God's family. None of us are capable of choosing God's family by ourselves. We respond to God, we choose God because he first chooses us. And he began working in us before we'd even thought of him. And by his spirit he calls us and enables us to respond. So if you want God to be just okay but you can't have it both ways you've either got to go i want god's justice or i want his mercy and grace and if you want his mercy and grace the way it works is we just say thank you you've opened my eyes because you called me and you chose me that's why it says in verse 16 it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort but on god's mercy Now in verses 17 to 18, he turns and reflects on the experience of God and the people of Israel and Pharaoh. I'll let you read that, Uh, I'm going to skip over that. But let me stop and answer a question that may be swirling your brains as you've been reading this scripture and hearing me speak. Because some may well say and rightly say, but Bruce, surely when I became a Christian, I made a decision for Christ. 
I said, I'm going to follow Jesus. And let me say, I did that myself. I remember waking up October 17, 7 a.m., 1984. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. We sing the song. I'm following Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. How does that work then? Is it a decision of our will? How can it be then God's decision? I've made a decision. Well, it's true. We do decide to bow the knee. We do decide to invite Jesus to be our Lord and Saviour. And if you've yet to do that, I would encourage you absolutely to do that. We truthfully sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Absolutely true. And as the Christian life continues, we'll continue to need to exercise our wills in a godly fashion to say yes to God. But our will and God's sovereign will are not opposed to each other. It's not one or the other. It's both and. But we need to avoid two traps of emphasising one over the other or playing them into each other. We need to understand rather there is a priority of one before the other. Let me put a little tongue twister on the screen. We will as he has willed that we will. will. Let me repeat that slowly. We will as he has willed that we will will. That should be an extra will on the end. And what that's saying is, God works in our hearts before we've even thought of him. And enables us to make a decision. But it's because God does that that we are able to make a decision. We will as he has willed that we will will. Now when that gives you a headache as it does with me, I go to Deuteronomy 29.29. It's one of my favourite verses for the things that are beyond me. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law and what Moses said to the people of God is so true for us today there are things that are secret that we don't understand how this works but there are things that are revealed that belong to us and what's been revealed to us is that we know that in all things God works for good for those who love him who've been called according to his purpose and that's what I hold on to There is no doubt a mystery that makes artwork look a bit like this, a bunch of dots where you can't see the picture that I can see in here, that relate to God's sovereign ways and his purposes that we won't understand until we get to heaven. But let me just say that should not surprise us because if God is God, There should absolutely be a mystery to the way he works. And this is at the centre of it. His sovereign purposes and ways, his electing choices. Why me, not others? It's the same with suffering. Why others, not me? We need to rest in the sure knowledge that our God is for us. And he is working things out fairly and rightly and for our good purposes. There is a second objection and it's in verse 19. 
If God chooses, then it's not my fault if I reject God. One of you will say to me, verse 19, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? I'm just going to give you a very short answer and finish because I think my time is up. But it's worth saying, I pastorally probably wouldn't go here in my first conversation if people asked me about the doctrine of election. But I want you to note how Paul does go here. And he goes to Job, effectively. And if you remember Job, he had his questions. He had his fists raised. God, why are you doing what you're doing? I want to have my time in your council to ask my questions. And then he stands before God and it's like getting run over by a steamroller. <laughs> and after being run over about 10 times, he goes, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll shut up and go away. Look at what Paul says. Uh, who are you? Seriously, who are you? A human being to talk back to God. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Quoting here both Isaiah and Jeremiah. And what he's saying, and it's a very important pastoral point for us. God is beyond us. And he's above us. And there will be questions and realities that we will just not know. And a part of that is the way... He chooses and elects. It's also on the question of suffering. And Paul just is saying to us, you've got to come to that place where you realise you are not God. And humble yourself. And realise that God is the one who's in charge. His sovereign purposes are good, they are fair and we actually don't have the right to talk back to him. But what we can take away is from what he's previously just said, that we can have absolute confidence because he has chosen us and that we are in Christ, that the God who began a good work in us is actually going to bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And the God who foreknew you, who predestined you, who chose you, who justified you, who glorified you, nothing can separate you, nothing, from the love he has for you in Christ Jesus. And when you get to the end of this three-chapter section, he finishes with these words, and I want to finish with these words because I think they're so apt, and we will come back to them probably the next two weeks. But I'm going to read to you the way he, he finishes this extended section. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out 
Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's ever been his counsellor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. And so to him be the glory forever. Let's pray. And Lord, friends, there may be issues where you just wonder, why has this happened? Why is this person not part of the kingdom yet? Why am I going through what I'm going through? I don't understand, Lord. The beautiful thing in Scripture is when we come to that humble place of acknowledging God, he says, come and pray and seek me. And so if you need to pour out your heart to God because of what you're going through, he knows what you're going through. He's sovereignly in charge. I want to give you a moment just to pray and bring those needs before the God who is your heavenly Father. and in which nothing can separate you from his love. So let's pray. I'll let you have some moments to be quiet and pray yourself, and then I'll pray for us all as we close. Heavenly Father, I just want to stop and acknowledge that you are God. You are above us. You are beyond us. Your ways are unsearchable. But yet in your mercy you have revealed yourself to us in your word, through your Son, by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for opening my eyes. Thank you for softening my heart so that I could respond and say yes to you and to your son. Work in all of our lives by your spirit to open our eyes, to soften our hearts, to enable us to say yes to you. And Lord, for those who are outside of your family, we pray, Lord, that in your sovereign mercy, you would move in their hearts and bring them into your faith, into your family. Grant them the gift of faith and repentance, we pray in Jesus' name.